Amen. All right, Isaiah 6. Um, have you ever, maybe you've had the same experience, have you ever gone someplace and been totally surprised to see somebody that you know there? Sometimes that's a good thing, and sometimes it's not so good. Um, I shared with you a few weeks ago that um, I was very surprised in my travels to see many of you in many different places, and that was really cool. Um, and then there was one moment where um, driving, or not driving, coming back from a conference in Colorado, um, having some traveling difficulties, having some layovers, because, you know, airplanes, everything's going great with those right now. So uh, coming back, I, I had a layover in Las Vegas, and I only had a couple of minutes in between flights, and so I ran and got some food, and I had to charge my phone, and so I literally just sat down in the middle of the hallway, like, I don't care how busy it is, I got 10 minutes to eat the sandwich and charge my phone, you can walk around me. And so I did. And while I was doing that, you know, you kind of look up, and you're like, you know, you know, and you've had this experience. You go to different places, and you see people, you're like, that looks exactly like a version of this person I know back home, right? So that happens all the time. And I look, and I'm like, that, that looks like John McGee. Huh? Okay. <laughs> and then I go to throw my trash away, and the McGee family stands up and says, we weren't sure if it was you or not. It's like, okay. They were coming back from vacation through Las Vegas as well. Didn't expect to see them there. Have you ever had that happen where you're suddenly like, whoa, it is you, right? You ever had that happen in church? Didn't expect to see somebody in church and boom, don't point. If it's this morning, don't point. That would be bad. I'm like, I can't believe he's here. I think we get a little bit of that in Isaiah 6 this morning. Um, You've got the, the cultural context of the moment. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died. And we talked about that, actually, just before I left on sabbatical, I went through the story of Uzziah, the the king who who was marvelously helped and did amazing things for the country, reigned for almost 50 years, or a little more than 50 years, and and the country experienced just great growth and enthusiasm, and everything was going really, really well for them. And it says he was marvelously helped, and, and God continued to bless him until he became strong. And that until he became strong is really significant because what happened was in that moment, Uzziah began to believe it was him that was creating all these opportunities for this country. It was him that had made all of this goodness pop up for God's people. And so then he decided he didn't even need the priesthood anymore. And he went into the temple and he offered his sacrifice. And as soon as he did it, bam, leprosy pops out on his forehead. And he's ostracized as a leper for the rest of his life until he dies. The country has to be going through some level of, of chaos and turmoil. Isaiah enters the temple and is surprised that when he walks into the temple, the last person he expected to see, he meets there. God himself. Did you come this morning expecting to meet God here? He, he was pretty surprised. I mean, in fact, when you read through the, uh, Isaiah, when you read through what he's talking about in chapter 6, he kind of gives us really kind of throwaway short description of everything. But, but I think it's because it was so overwhelming to him. He didn't, how, how do you put this to words? I walked into the temple, and there is the king, high and lifted up, seated on his throne, and, and he is so there, <laughs> so Big and massive and mighty that the the hem of his royal robe is is filling the entire temple. Imagine a robe filling this entire room where you don't even have room to stand without stepping on it. That's what Isaiah is experiencing. 
And then there's these winged angelic beings, these seraphim, these burning angels, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, flying around, and they're praising God at the top of their lungs, and the building is shaking. And I know some of you don't like loud worship. But it pales in comparison to what you're going to hear in the presence of God. The foundation shakes the room, fills with smoke. It is unlike anything Isaiah has ever seen before. It's what theologians talk about when they say, God isn't like us. It is the otherness of God. He is so completely unlike us. And friends, I've got to tell you again, this is what God's been doing in my heart over the last months. We'll never be able to fully comprehend the otherness of God But if we don't start trying, we are missing out. We are missing out. You and I need to understand that God is not just a bigger, better version of us. It's not like he's just a little stronger than I am, and a little smarter than I am, and a little better looking than I am. But that's how we treat him, isn't it? We can see it in the way that we demand explanations and answers for things going on in our lives. You know the story of Job, right? Things are going great for Job. Life's just rolling. Kids are great. Family is great. Possessions are great. Work is great. The bank accounts are great. Marriage is great. Everything is wonderful. And then in one moment, one day, everything is taken away from him. Except for his wife which I'm guessing probably he was like, okay. When your wife stands in front of you and says, do you maintain your integrity? (laughs) Just curse God and die. Get it over with already. She's not to be thrown into the credit category. Okay? As you read through the book of Job, it's, it's, there's just ins and outs, and friends come and give horrible counsel, and some, some, some of it sounds true and then misses the mark, but what you hear flowing out of Job is, God, what have I done to you? This isn't fair. Answer me, God. I'll wait. Who? in their right mind, would speak to king of kings like that. And God doesn't explain the circumstances in Job's life, much like he won't explain the circumstances in your life. But what Job does, starting in Job chapter 38, is he starts to ask Job some questions. God says, okay, you have questions for me? Let me lay a couple out for you. I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to read 38, 39, 40, 41, where God is speaking and making sure that uh, Job understands who is who and who is not who. Let me just highlight a few. Job 38, verse 4. This is God speaking to Job. And I love, yeah, I love it. Hey, Job, where were you when I established the earth? Tell me, since you have such understanding. Verse 16. Have you traveled to the sources of the sea, walked in the depths of the oceans? Have you comprehended the extent of the earth? Oh, Job, tell me if you already know all of this. 19, where is the road to the home of light? Do you know where darkness lives so you can lead it back to its border? Are you familiar with the paths to its home? Don't you know? You were already born. You have lived so very long, Job. 
Verse 35, can you send out lightning bolts? And they go, do they report back to you, oh, here we are. Does the hawk, this is chapter 39, verse 26, does the hawk take flight by your understanding and spread its wings to the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and make its nest on high? And at this point, you're in chapter 40, and Job's like, mercy, right? Ah, I mean, think about it for a second. You have asked God some tough questions. I remain grateful that there is not a recording device in my truck that I know of. Because God and I have had, well, no, I'll take that back. That makes it sound way better than it was. I'd say God and I have had some battles. Uh, it's not much of a battle when you're like, whimper, whimper, squash. I mean, that's not really, that's, and that's what's happening. <laughs> but you get to chapter 40, and Job's like, okay, okay, I spoke too much. And listen to what he says in verse 3. Job answered the Lord, I am so insignificant. How can I answer you in your questions? I place my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not reply twice, but now I can add Nothing. But God's not done with them yet. The Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Okay, get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Would you really challenge my justice? Would you declare me guilty in order to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can you thunder with a voice like his? God is not a bigger, better, slightly stronger version of us. Remember that when you're talking to him. I'm not saying don't ask him questions. Ask him the hard questions. I, those conversations in my truck, I don't want any of you to ever hear them. However, I would, I would be losing out if I couldn't have the freedom to say the things I say to God in that truck, knowing that in his wrath he will remember mercy. But there are times in that truck, I'm like, God, I don't understand. But remember who it is you are talking to. You aren't peers with God. He's the one who's high and lifted up. He's the one who's, who fills the temple with the hem of his garment. He is the one who is surrounded by these seraphim. This is the only place in the Old Testament that they're spoken of, the seraphim. If you literally translate it, it can be the bright ones, but probably better, the burning ones. We have six wings, and I'm going to spare all of us the trouble. I have no idea of a lot of things going on with these seraphim. Do do all angels have six wings? I don't know. These ones do, so let's focus on these ones, okay? (laughs) Cool. So so they've got six wings, okay? These burning angels. So so use your, 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 your sanctified imagination to picture that just for a moment. And with two of their wings, they're covering their eyes because they can't look upon the glory that is God. Imagine that for a moment. Here we are talking angelic beings called the burning ones, and God's glory is too magnificent for them to even peer at. So who dare look at them? They take two of their wings and they cover their eyes. They take two of their wings and they, in modesty, cover their feet. And then in two of their wings, they are either flitting about to do the work of God or to worship God. We're not exactly sure what that is, but what we do know is that it's not the point. The wings are not the point. What the point is, is this. In the ancient Near East, um, when, when artwork was done, and actually even in some more modern artwork, you would, you would look at the image that was that was created, the artwork that was there. And as an observer, you would find the focal point of that artwork by looking where the characters in that artwork are looking. So you follow the eyes 
of the ones who are painted in the artwork to see where they are all gazing. And then you understand a little bit behind the thinking of the, of the master artist. That's why the Mona Lisa is so creepy. Because she's looking at you. So when we look at this picture, they have one focus. And that's to be our focus. They're calling out to each other. This is an ongoing act without ever becoming completed. So it's this regular chorus of angels singing to one another in God's presence. And singing might be way too fancy a word for it. The idea is this overlapping noise that just builds and builds on top of each other. And their message is incredibly clear and it's very concise. Holy, holy, holy. Is that poetic? Maybe. Is it um, a, a repetition for ad absur- absurdium, which means just to make it absurd, they're just going to keep saying it over? Maybe. But in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, which is what Isaiah was originally written in, repetition is a way to express a superlative. So you go to Second uh, Kings 25, and, and they talk about the gold, just the purest of gold. And in, the, in our language, in our English language, we translate it pure gold. But in the Hebrew, it is literally gold, gold. Okay, you talk about a, the deep pit that Joseph was thrown into. Pit, pit. So it makes you wonder, if you watch Looney Tunes, what does beep, beep mean? No, I'm sorry. That was, that was dumb. <laughs> I tell my wife, any joke that I plan always is dumb. <laughs> yeah. The other ones usually get me in trouble, so anyway. But here in this moment, two ain't going to cut it. And there's not another time when the adjective, an adjective is used for a person in triplicate. He's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. It's not one plus one plus one. It is infinite perfection times infinite perfection times infinite perfection. God is totally, completely, absolutely the holiest of holy. This is his otherness. And while the seraphim, these, these burning angels are singing to one another or chanting to one another, whatever it is, their voices shake the very foundation of the doorways with their voices. And the question I have to ask you is this. If the house shakes with the voices of the seraphim, imagine what happens when God speaks. I, 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 hope, I hope you're able to catch just a little glimpse of what's happening because I, I can't communicate it big enough. What you have here is Isaiah suddenly finds himself in a room with God. What would you do if you suddenly found yourself in a room with God? Well, I think Isaiah's response is exactly what ours would be. Look at verse 5. Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, 
the Lord of armies. Woe is me. Woe is sadness, misfortune, judgment. Uh, actually, if you go back a chapter, chapter 5. Chapter 5, Isaiah, who is, who is prophesying and preaching against the evils of the day. He's, he's not pulling punches. He's calling out his countrymen because of their sin. And you get to chapter 5, verse 18, and he says, No, woe to those of you who drag iniquity with cords of deceit and pull sin along with cart ropes. To those who say, let him hurry up and do his work quickly so we can see it. Now let the plan of the Holy One of Israel take place so that we can know it. Woe to those, verse 20, who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light, light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who consider themselves wise and judge themselves clever. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, who are champions at, I like this in my version, pouring beer. Woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of justice. And let me add one here, and this is, this, is, this is not scripture, this is pure Frank over here, so please understand that this is a woe that I would declare, not one that God did or Isaiah did. Woe to the one in this room who read those things and thought of someone else. What he is declaring is judgment will come down on the ones who have turned their back on God and instead thought themselves to be something when in fact they are nothing. He says, I am in, in so much trouble right now. I'm in, I'm in so much trouble. I am doomed. I am ruined. I am undone. The Hebrew word is dama, which is a verb that means to be silent, to be cut off and, or destroyed. It can be talking about being torn apart psychologically. The idea is that Isaiah is found himself in a room with God and he is filled with this profound sense of dread. He's done. As soon as he sees God, he sees himself differently. As soon as he sees God, he sees himself differently. Let me put this, it happened in Job as well. After God's done speaking with Job, Job falls on his face and says, God, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. And because I see you now, I despise myself and I repent in dust and in ashes. There is this response that happens for a couple of reasons out of Isaiah. The first is because he understands that he has now seen full the holiness of God. And when you see the fullness and full holiness of God, your sin, no matter how small you might think it is, because we play that game, don't we? Well, I, I didn't do that. I just did a little of this. You know the white lie thing that is created in our own head? No, we're in Scripture, just in our own head because it makes us feel better about ourselves. Yeah. It doesn't matter how small or insignificant you think the sin that you have committed is. When you stand before a holy God and you take the smallest of your sins and you hold it up against the pristine backdrop of the holiness of God, you see how dark it really is. When you come into the presence of a pure and perfect and holy, infinitely holy God, your goodnesses stack up to a pile of filthy rags. In fact, in the presence of omnipotence, all power, Isaiah's strength is anything but strength. 
Look, look, look what he talks about. So as a prophet, he speaks, he, his lips, his speech. That's the primary way that he can give honor and glory to God. But in light of the holiness of God, Isaiah realizes that even his greatest gift, his best offering, it's pale and it's sickly. Any, any sense of goodness, any sense of accomplishment is nothing before God. What can I do in front of him? I can't give enough, I can't do enough, I can't be enough. And when you come to that realization that this is him and this is all I got, Time undone! The, the glue that holds us together often is what we feel like we can accomplish on our own. Well, in that moment you come face to face with the Holy God, you come unglued. Because there's nothing holding you together anymore. Your ability, your strength, your goodness, it isn't enough. And, and that's the experience that Isaiah is having when he is standing in the presence of God. And then it suddenly gets even more terrifying. Verse 6, then one of those seraphim, one of those burning angels flies to me, and in his hand is a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it. So, so just imagine for a moment, here's what's happening. Here Isaiah is. He knows he's in trouble. And then it just gets worse because as he looks up, here comes one of those, those burning angels flying towards him with a glowing coal in his hand. And the thought in Isaiah's mind is the thought that's in your mind is the thought that's in my mind. Can't be good. This can't be good. But actually it is. Actually, it is. And it's something that you and I need to understand. It's what I tried to talk about last week when, when Moses stood before God and said, I want to see your glory. And, and, and his chosen manifestation of his glory was not just all of his massiveness, but it was also his mercy and his compassion, the grace that he would share to show to those who, who were in need of grace. And in this moment, this burning angel... This holy thing touches Isaiah's mouth, and it doesn't hurt him. It heals him. So what has happened? This is a coal from the altar. So, so there would have been a, a sacrifice on top of that altar. Let me kind of talk to you. They would have, they'd have the, the burning coals going, and then the, uh, someone would come to bring their sin offering or their guilt offering, and they would bring their lamb, and they would present it to the priest. They would lay their hand on top of the head of the lamb, and they would confess their sins. This is the sins that I have committed, and, and it's a picture of transferring your sins from yourself onto the head, into this, this spotless lamb. The priest would then take that lamb and lay it on the altar. It would slit its throat and pour its blood out. And then the, the blood would soak the coals beneath and they would fire up the fire a little hotter so ultimately it would consume the entire offering and nothing was left. And after time, what would happen is those coals would begin to simmer. They would begin to die down a little bit. And so, so that's what this angel has grabbed. He has grabbed a coal that, that has already been spent. It's already burnt itself out in consuming a sacrifice. Sacrifice had already been made. And when he touches Isaiah's lips, his entire identity changes. So no longer are you identified as a man who has unclean lips, but instead you are identified as one who has had his iniquity removed, who has had his sin atoned for. Your sin has been taken away. Your sin has been paid for. Please understand, Isaiah didn't do anything to deserve that. 
He didn't make any promises. He didn't give a big check in the tithe. He didn't, he didn't pray a little more or read his Bible a little more. What he did is exactly what you and I are supposed to do regularly. What we do is we come into the presence of a holy God and we see him as holy, holy, holy. And, and when we get that full view of who he is, what ends up happening is we then see who we really are. And we confess our sin. And in that moment, when we see our sin for what it is, and we confess it, God moves toward you with an offer of forgiveness. That's the glory of God. Please understand, the glory of God is terrifying. (sighs) But it's also atoning. Moses says, please let me see your glory. And God said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That is a manifestation of the glory of God. The holiness of God is going to reveal how undone we are. But in his mercy, in his compassion, in his divinely manifested glory, we see that Jesus Christ has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And we get to wash in that grace. We get to wash in that mercy. And we get to hear the proclamation of Jesus Christ that our sin has been paid in full and it's finished. That's the glory of God. That's what we get to look at today as we observe this picture of communion together. So just logistically in a moment, I'm going to pray and close our time together. And then I'll dismiss you and ask you just to stand where you are, head towards the right, come up the aisle. There are sections. Each section has a communion station at the front. You can receive your elements. They're stacked on top of each other, so make sure you take them both and return back to your seat. And and, and just take a few moments of praying and silence, and we'll observe communion together. I'll explain a little bit more about that when we get there, but but let let me finish this section of our service with this. When you reach the end of yourself, and you have to confess only what is true, the sorrow seems to disappear. Because what you will find yourself confessing is that though you are broken, though you are a sinner, though you are undone, what Jesus Christ accomplished for you on the cross and has offered to you in his forgiveness will be forever. Jesus' body broken for us. Jesus' blood shed for us. Apart from which, we could never stand before God. Would you pray with me, Father? Thank you. Thank you for the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who came to take away our sins. Thank you that in this moment, we know we can come stand before you, not because of any goodness that we have done, but because of everything that Jesus has done. Father, I ask that you would be glorified in in our time celebrating communion.
For it's in Jesus' good and wonderful, matchless name I pray. Amen.